May I encourage you to take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 9. It has been such a joy to be able to go through verse by verse the Gospel of Matthew as we exalt the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ as Matthew portrays him as the sovereign king. And we find ourselves this morning in verses 27, and actually we'll probably just get through to verse 34. This will be part one of what will be a two-part series. But before we look at the text, I want to preface my remarks to you this morning and hopefully prepare your hearts for what we will hear by simply saying, as we look around the world today, we see that it is filled with never-ending tragedies. We look at the news and we continue to see the scourge of terrorism. We see warring factions everywhere. We see cultic murders, suicide. We see apostate priests molesting children, men who possess no saving faith, which alone can restrain the flesh. We see the growing moral menace of homosexuality. We see political corruption. We see ungodly judges ruling our land and continuing to plunge our society into a moral freefall. We look around and we see domestic violence. We see drug and alcohol abuse. We see rape, the proliferation of disease, natural disasters. Friends, this old world is just kind of unraveling, if you will. It is in perpetual turmoil. I'm reminded of what Job said, that man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. And you say, well, why? I wonder why. Why all of the tragedy? What is really going on? Well, very simple, three-letter word, sin. We are seeing the inevitable consequences of sin in our world. In fact, if we were to look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 20, we see that it was because of sin that God deliberately subjected all of his creation into futility, which literally means that he subject, subjected his creation into an utter inability to achieve its desired purpose, namely to glorify God. Indeed, he cursed all of creation. And as a result, no part of his creation is capable of fulfilling its original purpose. In fact, Paul goes on to tell us in that text that all of creation groans in its forlorn and barren condition. So, friends, we all struggle through life dealing with the consequences of sin, desperately trying to survive in a world that is often hostile to our very existence. But we also know that because of the mercy and the grace of God, he has not forever abandoned us nor his creation to such a tragic state. In Romans 8 and verse 20, we go on to read that God's curse upon his creation was done in hope, the text says. That creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains for childbirth together until now. The analogy that is used there is that the physical universe is personified as a mother experiencing the pains of childbirth. And of course, we know that with childbirth, the pains will increase in frequency and severity. And the creation here is longing to birth something new. And that something new will be a transformed universe that will perfectly fulfill its glorious purpose in exalting the creator. In fact, in verse 19 of Romans 8, that text goes on to say that the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, the revealing, literally the unveiling, the uncovering. And of course, that is a reference to when Christ returns again in all of his glory and we will also be revealed with him in our glorified bodies. Well, Scripture is filled with many hundreds of references to that time of millennial blessing 
that precedes the eternal state. And friends, before we look at the text this morning, I wanted to take just a moment to set your hearts ablaze once again with the glorious anticipation that we have with what Christ has promised us. You can just think with me in terms of the big picture. We read in the word of God that when he comes again, the earth will be renovated and it will return once again to Edenic splendor. In Zechariah 14, we read that he will come and his feet will land upon the Mount of Olives and that mountain will split apart and it will form an enormous valley east of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah 3 and Ezekiel 43, we read that Jerusalem itself will be elevated to be greatly expanded and it will be exalted. It will be the exalted city of the world, that place where Messiah will establish his throne and his millennial temple. And we will also see at that time, according to the word of God, the ineffable light of his Shekinah. It will once again illuminate the temple as he manifests his glorious presence. In Joel 3 that we've been studying on Wednesday nights, we see that there will be a perennial river that will flow from the house of the Lord. It will water the valley of Shittim and it will empty into the Mediterranean Sea and even into the Dead Sea. And the Judean wilderness will blossom like a rose, according to Isaiah 35 and verse 1. The land will produce enormous amounts of food, according to Isaiah 30. We read that even the animal kingdom will revert back to Edenic splendor. According to Isaiah 20, 65, verse 25, we read that the wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The curse will be lifted at that time, dear friends, on all of the animal kingdom, except for the serpent. The text goes on to say that he will remain upon his belly and he will eat the dust for his food. So as we look at Scripture We see that Jesus, the Messiah, will come and he will dwell upon Mount Zion and he will rule the world with absolute authority, absolute power, with perfect and total righteousness from the ancient throne of David. We read that the Jews who survived the great tribulation will finally believe in their Messiah, likewise many Gentiles. And we read that together they will enter into the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies But friends, when they do, it will be without any blindness. It will be without any brain tumors. It will be without any cancer, without any diseases, without any deformities, without any paralysis. And we also read that we as the glorified church will come and we will reign with the Lord with great authority as kingdom priests, according to Revelation 1.6. We also read that the 12 tribes of Israel will be reunited, according to Ezekiel 37. And that will be the first time they have been reunited in 3,000 years if the Lord were to come soon. And I believe he will. And we also read that the 12 apostles will be seated on thrones to rule over them, according to Matthew 19 and Mark or Luke 22. Friends, my point is simply this. We have a glorious future in Christ Jesus. And we never want to let that escape us. We never want to get lost in in the world, but rather stay lost in the wonder and the amazement of all that God has promised his saints. And so I have given you just merely a glimpse of millennial blessing. There's so much more that can be said, as I'm sure you're aware, and certainly a glimpse of the eternal state. But friends, I hope you see that we have a marvelous hope in Christ. In Psalm 119.81, the psalmist says that indeed my soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. In Romans 15.13, Paul tells us, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, friends, even though you turn on the news and you see all of these terrible tragedies, there's no no place for a long face with a Christian. No place for that. Not on the face of the redeemed. First Peter chapter one and verse three, we read that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in Hebrews six nineteen, we read this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. And indeed, the promises of God are the Gibraltar that gives us strength to carry on come what may. And the Apostle Paul told Titus in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us. 
Paul also tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 12, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. In other words, we are to proclaim boldly what we know to be true about our wonderful Lord and Savior. The hope, according to Titus 1-2, is of eternal life that we have in God, in which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Well, in light of all of this, I want you to remember that the miracles that we've been examining in Matthew are merely a foretaste of millennial blessing and of the eternal state in heaven. And what we read here are simply glimpses of his ultimate power and authority that will certainly characterize his thousand year reign on the earth and in the new heaven and the new earth. And in the text before us this morning, we see three wonderful illustrations of future glory. We're going to see the victory over blindness. We're going to see victory over Satan. And we're going to see victory through laborers next week. But this morning, I want to immerse you in these two concepts in particular. The Lord's victory over blindness and victory over Satan. First of all, victory over blindness, beginning in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. And after he had come into the house, the blind man came up to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Be it done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See here, let no one know about this. But they went out and spread the news about him in all all that land. Again, may I remind you of the context. Jesus has just raised the head honcho's 12-year-old daughter, the synagogue official's 12-year-old daughter from the dead. And the word of this is spreading like wildfire through the region of Palestine. Imagine the mob now that are following the Lord as he continues to endure a total lack of privacy in his life. They are clamoring after him, throngs of people. Some of them are merely curiosity seekers pushing and shoving to get a glimpse of who this man is. Others perhaps are those that would see him as some kind of a magician, some kind of a miracle worker. And others, I'm sure, as we read Scripture, see him as the son of David, the son of God. But then, of course, there are the devious and the profoundly offended Pharisees and Sadducees that are trailing him like bloodhounds, seething in their resentment of his uncanny ability to outwit them at every turn. But folks, in the middle of all the hubbub, you have two blind men. Desperate for physical and spiritual healing. They are hysterically stumbling along with the mob. Imagine if it were you trying to make your way in the midst of all of the chaos. Tenaciously holding on to one another, probably. And they're crying out at the top of their lungs. Have mercy on us, son of David. The original language would help us understand that. Crying out means to scream in great anguish at the top of your lungs. The grammar would also indicate that it was something they they kept on doing. It's not like they did it once or twice. They were continually screaming out in desperation and determination to be heard. Have mercy on us, son of David. Notice they did not say, have mercy on us, great rabbi, great teacher, miracle man. But they used the title Son of David, which, by the way, was the most common Jewish title used to refer to the promised deliverer, the Messiah. Of course, this revealed that they knew who Jesus really was. Remember, the prophet Nathan told David back in 2 Samuel 7, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. 
And later on in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, perhaps these blind men, I'm sure they, they thought of this, they knew of this. Perhaps they had even heard of what had happened when the angel Gabriel announced the birth of Jesus to Mary. Word would get around quickly. Remember in Luke 1, beginning in verse 32, the angel said he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Well, everyone obviously would be hearing these men screaming their public confession as they followed along after Jesus. Jesus, son of David, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised deliverer of Deliverer of Israel and in humility, they were crying out to him for undeserved mercy and grace. That's fascinating. As we look at the text that Jesus at first makes no response to their desperate pleas. Perhaps he was testing the perseverance of their faith, perhaps to allow them to attract even further attention to himself over the cries of the frenzied mob. But finally, he enters into what we would believe would be Peter's house and the blind men finally make their way to him. And he asks them to make one final and complete profession of faith. And he says to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? To which he replied, yes, Lord. They replied, yes, Lord. And folks, with no special props, with no television cameras rolling, with no massive audience, with no drum roll or emotional theatrics, Jesus merely reaches out and touches their eyes and says to them, be it done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were open. Dear friends, I hope you see not only the foretaste of future blessing here, but I hope you also see the beautiful analogy of the pattern of salvation. Because here we see Two blind men that are acknowledging their desperate need for healing, both physically and spiritually. They acknowledge also that Jesus is the Savior and the Lord, the Son of David. They see also that their soul is in anguish and they're crying out in anguish for divine mercy, for divine grace. They're not crying out for some prosperity or something to somehow help them just in this life. Certainly part of it was true. But they wanted healing beyond the physical because they knew that they could not heal themselves. And then we see that they trusted solely in Jesus Christ for salvation. What a marvelous pattern and picture of salvation. Well, friends, here we witness Jesus' victory over physical blindness, which is a picture throughout Scripture of spiritual blindness as well. It's a profound tragedy when we see people that are spiritually blind. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we read that Satan has blinded the minds of those who refuse to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And it says, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Recently, I spent over the course of several weeks at least four hours sharing the gospel with a man in desperate need of both physical and spiritual healing. A number of you have prayed for him. I responded biblically to all of his objections of Scripture. I answered all of his theological questions. And finally, when it was all said and done, he said to me, and I quote, Pastor Harrell, I'm sorry. I just don't buy it. We see life through very different eyes. And I was reminded here again of spiritual blindness. A man who was not coming to his senses and recognizing the desperate need of his spiritual condition. He was not acknowledging Jesus as Savior and Lord. He did not cry out in anguish of soul for undeserved mercy and grace. He did not realize that somehow he could not heal himself. And he refused to trust solely in Jesus Christ. A perfect example of this is in 1 Corinthians 2.14. 
where we read that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That literally means that they have no capacity to discern the truth when it is presented clearly to them. You see, friends, spiritual blindness is a dreadful condition. And we all know people who simply refuse to see the light. And I want you to understand that God condemns them. For example, in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, we read that the light has come into the world, referring to Christ. And men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And folks, it's interesting that when people refuse to believe, especially in the face of full knowledge, in the face of the full light of the gospel of Christ, you realize that God will judicially blind them and seal them in their unbelief. In John chapter 12 and verse 40, Jesus condemned those who witnessed his miracles, yet refused to believe his message. And there he said to them that he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. You know, we witness this even with the Jewish people today. Even Israel, God's covenant people, have been temporarily blinded, according to Romans 11 and verse 8. There we read that God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear. And in verse 25, we go on to read that he has given them a partial hardening. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. And of course, this is referring to that time when the church age is past, the church is snatched away in the glorious rapture. And then the Lord deals with his covenant people during that time of tribulation. But friends, by God's grace, These two blind men that we read about this morning saw the glorious light of truth in their hearts. And they were given the gift of faith to trust in Jesus as Savior. Then he tells them sternly something very interesting in verse 30. See here, let no one know about this. Well, that's a curious statement. Obviously, this couldn't be a reference to the restoration of sight. That was unmistakably obvious. All of their family and friends would be able to see that very quickly. But rather, I believe this is a reference to any further public proclamation that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now, here's why this would prematurely attract revolutionary Jews to his side. Those that were determined to throw off the rope, the the, the yoke of Roman bondage. And it would also stir up enormous political opposition for both Jewish and Roman sectors. And perhaps even the Lord was wanting people to make their own decisions about who he was as the son of David, about his messianic claims and not merely be attracted to him on the basis of other people's words and his miracles. But I want you to remember that most people did not see Jesus' miracles as signs that were validating his messiahship, but rather they saw what he did as magic. Or perhaps some supernatural endowment that was given to a mere man that would benefit them in some physical way. They didn't understand the spiritual implications of what Jesus was doing. At least many of them didn't. But whatever the reasons were, these men disobeyed and their exuberance over their deliverance from blindness at the hands of the promised deliverer was more than they could possibly contain. Well, we see Jesus not only proving himself to be victorious over blindness, but also over Satan. Look next at what happens in verse 32 of Matthew 9. And as they were going out, behold, a dumb man, demon possessed, was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the dumb man spoke and the multitudes marveled, saying, nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Well, I would expect that coming from them. Friends, once again, we see a foretaste of millennial blessing 
We read in Scripture that Satan will be bound for a thousand years, according to Revelation 20 and verse 2. And we see here that these men were going out. Notice as they were going out in verse 32, the grammar would indicate that perhaps the blind men that were now leaving Jesus in their exuberance were going out and, and they see the dumb man, the man that is demon possessed, and they bring him to Jesus. In other words, they saw another person in desperate need of the Savior. And we see that this man was unable to speak because of demonic activity, because he was demon possessed. And so again, we see the power and the authority of Jesus, even though there is no indication that this man had any faith either before or after his deliverance. Nevertheless, Jesus rebuked the demon and cast it from the man. Now, this should produce great joy to every Christian because, dear friends, Jesus is victorious over the two enemies of our souls. The first enemy, of course, would be the enemy of our flesh, illustrated by the blindness of these men. And secondly, over Satan, illustrated by a man under his control. You see, we have no need to fear that roaring lion that seeks someone to devour. Because indeed, Jesus, the son of David, has mercy and compassion on those that love him. And he delivers us from them both. In light of this, I ran across an old poem by George Lansing Taylor that perfectly summarizes what we have just examined in this text. It goes like this. O oh, Savior, we are blind and dumb. To Thee for sight and speech to come. Touch Thou our eyes with truth's bright rays. Teach Thou our lips to sing Thy praise. Help us to, to fell our mournful night and seek through all things for Thy light till the glad sentence we receive. Be it to you as you believe. Then swift the dumb to Thee we'll bring till all thy grace shall see and sing. I also want to point out to you a noteworthy pattern in each of the miracles that we've observed over the last few months, actually. In every case, you see people that recognize their utter inability to deliver themselves from their dreadful condition, at least those that place their faith in Christ. And we also see that they persistently plead for mercy. And we see that Jesus responded, and I want you to catch this, with an effortless display of supernatural power and authority. An effortless display of supernatural power and authority. Now that's very important for what we were about to look at. And of course, he was authenticating his claim to be the Messiah. Now mind you, after the church is well established, these miraculous sign gifts that would validate both the message and the messenger, disappear. We see them no longer because the church was established. The scripture was now canonized and finalized. And there was no need for that. Now, I want to digress for a moment. I want to expose a damnable heresy that continues to gain popularity in churches that are ostensibly Christian and it could be defined under the rubric or the heading of the word faith movement. Now, before I look into this, let me tell you why we're going to digress for a moment. First of all, I, I'm compelled for at least two reasons. Number one, several of you have encountered this and you've asked me questions. And I feel as a shepherd, I know that one of the things I must do is protect you from the wolves. And I therefore need to address this. But also, God has required me to do this in his word. Jesus warned in Matthew 7:15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Wolves in sheep's clothing, as you will recall, refers to imposters that dress up in the garb of a pastor. Now, these spiritual predators have millions of followers, just as Jesus promised they would. There's a narrow way and a wide way, a broad way. Only a few will find the narrow. Many will find the broad. And in Matthew 7, we read more about them, that these false teachers will preach a wide gate, broad way kind of gospel, a counterfeit gospel. They will call Jesus Lord. They will look Christian. They will attach themselves to Christianity. 
They will attach themselves to the true church. They will even do sensational works according to Scripture. But they will never enter the kingdom because they are not Christian. Folks, I also want to add that I take very seriously what the Lord has told me. You know, the Lord has told me as your pastor what my marching orders are. He has given me a job expectations list. And one of the things that he tells us in Acts 20 and verse 28, here Paul now is speaking to the elders of the church. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And he goes on to say that savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Here we read that from within the ranks of Christianity, Satan will Allow the tares to grow up amongst the wheat. And wherever you see the wheat, you're going to find Satan scattering tares triple fold. And so we must be on guard. If I can give you one other passage before we look at this word faith movement that is a priority in my heart. In Jude 3, we have a solemn warning to proclaim and protect the truth. In fact, if you look at our website, that's what it'll say. Calvary Bible Church, proclaiming and protecting the truth. And there we read that we are to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, friends, my purpose in this little digression is certainly to heighten your awareness of these apostates and the blasphemous heresies that they spew out from their mouth. And I might also add that I will unashamedly and with authority Follow the biblical precedent and I will mention their names. But I also want to contrast these popular distortions of truth with the way people came to Jesus for healing and the way Jesus healed them. The word faith movement. And by the way, the re again, the reason I'm picking this particular one is because it has such enormous popularity and because a number of you have asked about it. In trying to, to define it, it's kind of like trying to nail jello on the wall because it's kind of all over the place. Uh, since it is beyond the pale of orthodox Christianity because it has no exegetical support, it tends to coalesce around the aberrant teachings of certain gurus that have been raised up in the movement, men like Kenneth Hagin. Word faith teachers today, and there's a whole list of them. I'll give you a few that you might be aware of. Oral Roberts, Kenneth Copeland, Jesse Duplantis, who was just down the road several weeks ago. Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Paul Crouch, the, the TBN crew. John Avanzini, Robert Tilton, Fred Price, Joyce Meyer, that's very popular today, to mention just a few. In fact, the majority of television preachers would fit into this category, certainly not all. Now, it's, it's essential to their satanically inspired system to have a bizarre distortion of the concept of biblical faith. And, of course, the very title, Word Faith, really betrays what they stand for, as you will see. Now, according to their theology, God is a faith being. And I'm going to cover this very quickly. You'll probably have to get the tape. But God is a faith being. In other words, to them, God is bound by the forces of the spiritual world and he can only operate through the force of faith. And I'm going to resist the incredible temptation to refute this every, at, at every stand. <laughs> they would even say that he created the universe that we live in through his faith. In Mark 11, verse 22, they will distort what Jesus said 
in that verse where Jesus said, have faith in God. They would say that technically the literal Greek says that we are to have the faith of God. Now, friends, that is utterly ludicrous. That, that is an interpretation that has obviously escaped the Christian world of scholarship for the past 2000 years. You see, for them, faith is a creative force that we can use to shape our world just like God supposedly created this world through his faith. The movement is also characterized by many mystical and metaphysical heresies concerning visualization and positive confession. They would see this as a spiritual law and namely what this would refer to is that if a believer desires something, first, what you need to do is visualize it in your mind and then you must exercise your faith by speaking it into existence. Thus, word faith, the title. And of course, this is essential to their distorted health, wealth, prosperity gospel. They would have us believe that Jesus and his disciples were rich that being poor and being sick is a sin and that material and physical blessings are in direct proportion to your faith. Certainly, Oral Roberts has perfected the scheme with his seed faith offerings. And by the way, you will see these types of themes in virtually all of their so-called sermons. Now, before I go on, people will sometimes ask me, Pastor, how in the world can can folks believe such folly? Well, it, especially folly that is so easily refuted in Scripture. Well, there's probably three reasons. First of all, some people are just ignorant. They're undiscerning. They've never been taught. They've been in churches where they've never heard expository preaching. They don't know doctrine. They just know Jonah and the whale and Noah and the ark and a few things like that. They hear evangelistic sermons every time they go to church. A lot of people just don't know any better. But secondly, according to 2 Timothy 4.4, 4, there we read that when people turn away from the truth, they hear the truth and they don't like what they hear. Once you do that, then the text goes on to say that they will turn aside to myths. And literally the concept there is that the deceptions of the false teachers will take them over and they won't even know what's happening to them. And then probably a third reason is I think many people follow the word faith movement because it is tantamount to what I would call a religious lottery. The same type of mentality. Millions of people come to hear these con artists so that they can learn some formula to manipulate God and cash in on God. They want some personal miracle. They're not there to deny themselves and take up a cross daily. They're there to indulge themselves and fulfill themselves and take up their cash daily. That's the idea. Well, one of the popular word faith teachers is uh, Joyce Meyer, if I can use her as an example. She claims that God has made her rich in reading some of her writings. One that I came across would, uh, where she has said that everything I came or everything I have came from him. My $10 million corporate jet, my husband's 107,000 silver gray Mercedes sedan, my $2 million home and houses worth another $2 million for my four children. All blessings, she says, have come straight from the hand of God. By the way, you can see her lavish estate on various websites. They are, as most of these people, under IRS investigation for misuse of tax-exempt donated funds, where they use these monies to support their opulent lifestyles and for their family. She goes on to say, it's been an amazing run, nothing short of a miracle. I was a one-time bookkeeper who now heads the world's largest television ministry. By the way, her... Life in the Word organization expects to take in $95 million this year. She says, just look around. She was talking to reporters from behind her desk on the third floor of the ministry's corporate offices. She goes on and says, here I am, an ex-housewife from Fenton with a 12th grade education. How can anybody look at all this and see anything other than God? She says, if you stay in your faith, and I'm quoting this, you are going to get paid. I'm living in my reward, end quote. Friends, I'm not going to take the time to refute this again, but I have to say, if you look at Hebrews 11, which would be the hall of faith, 
um, and some people would call it the Faith Hall of Fame, which would be apt. There you will find examples of faithful servants that that lived in profound suffering. They were destitute. They were anything but this. And their lives were characterized far more by perseverance than by prosperity. She has, like many of them, lots of bizarre and mystical beliefs. She makes the assertion that angels tell her what to preach. She believes that certain kinds of jewelry attract evil spirits. She asserts that God would never allow her to fall into error. Uh, With respect to spiritual warfare, she believes that generational spirits supposedly torment families for generations with specific sins. And she even believes that a demon of lust torments her family. And people, again, if I can say, without saving faith, you have no ability to restrain the flesh. We're not talking about a, a need for exorcism here. We're talking about the need of genuine saving faith. And these kinds of mystical, superstitious fantasies, again, are commonplace with these folks. They're always seeing visions. They're always talking with God and God talking to them and so on. I, I've spent time with several of them. I've told you some of those stories, but perhaps their their worst and most blasphemous distortion is that of the their understanding of the, of the atoning work of Christ. And Joyce Meyer's assertions are not unlike those of other leading uh, word faith proponents, such as Kenneth Copeland. They would say that Christ's death on the cross. I want you to listen very carefully here. It was not sufficient to atone for our sins. That his work of redemption was only completed by suffering in hell. And when he was in hell, then he was born again. By the way, one of the one of the themes that you will see constantly in this movement is is the 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 belittling of the majesty and the glory of God and the exalting of man. I read one place where uh, Kenneth Copeland was reading what the Lord said uh, that I am that I am. And he commented after that and said, yeah, and so am I. So they believe that we're little gods in this type of stuff. Well, here's how the heresy unfolds. The faith teachers claim that when Adam fell in the garden, he forfeited the nature of God and he took on the nature of Satan. Now, again, you'll not find any of this in Scripture. And that salvation for the faith healers is not the cleansing of sin through divine forgiveness, It's not the idea, the biblical notion of of the imputed righteousness of Christ through the atonement where where the where the Lord reconciles sinful man to a holy God. But rather for them, for the for the word faith teachers, salvation is the removal of the nature of Satan from man and the restoring of the nature of God in man. They believe that Jesus had to take on the nature of Satan on the cross. For them, it is not enough that Christ died physically, but I want you to catch this. He had to die spiritually as well as physically in order to take away our satanic nature and restore our God nature. He then had to descend into hell to suffer. And while he was in hell, he was born again. And through his act of being born again, he then conquered the devil. Well, friends, again, this is pure fantasy. This is counterfeit truth. This would certainly qualify for doctrines of demons, of which Paul warned us in 1 Timothy 4.1. And of course, they're notorious for their divine divine healing. And all of their understanding of divine healing will, will flow from the poisonous well of the word faith's positive confession doctrine. They would say that divine healing always comes. The problem is not with. The coming of the healing, but with your receiving what God gives you. They have to have a reason to explain why the healing never works. Frequently, I discover when I read their materials that when people come for healing, the self-appointed, self-proclaimed faith healer will pray over them and, and, and confess in faith that they were healed. However, when those same people come back to him, And ask for more prayer because it didn't work. He tells them that they have denied their healing and that the word of God and denied the word of God and 
And therefore, has they have nullified his prayer, that they have destroyed the effects of of his faith, the faith healer's faith, through their negative confession. Kenneth Hagin, one of their prominent teachers, would have us believe that it is a mistake to examine yourself after praying for healing, that a person should accept the testimony of the Bible, even if his or her physical senses indicate otherwise. In other words, the faith teachers would say that once you've asked for your healing, if you still feel the symptoms, you need to deny them because they're not true. Now, folks, this is not only unbiblical, but this is stupid. This is really stupid. Imagine somebody who needs the early diagnosis of cancer and they're feeling something, even though they've been prayed over. And they don't get the early diagnosis. And by the way, you see many lawsuits and this routinely is happening that people die because they've been duped. However, the faith teachers themselves do not regard this as denial. On the contrary, Copeland states, and I quote, healing always comes and that the problem is with our receiving, not God's giving, end quote. D.R. McConnell uh, has written in a work called A Different Gospel, I think a very good summary. I want to quote this to you as we wrap this up this morning. He says, and I quote, there are many peculiar ideas and practices in the word faith theology system. But what merits it, the label of heresy, are the following. Number one, it's deistic view of God who must dance to men's attempts to manipulate the spiritual laws of the universe. Secondly, it's demonic view of Christ who has filled who was filled with the, quote, satanic nature and must be, quote, born again in hell. Thirdly, it's Gnostic view of revelation, which demands denial of the physical senses and classifies Christians by their willingness to do so. And fourthly, it's metaphysical view of salvation, which deifies man and spiritualizes the atonement, locating it in hell rather than on the cross, thereby subverting the crucial unbiblical belief that it is Christ's physical death and shed blood, which alone can atone for sin, end quote. Friends, may I remind you what the Lord said on the cross? He said, it is finished, which literally means the debt is canceled. It is paid in full. We've been studying that on Wednesday nights. Last Wednesday night, I I think I'll probably continue some of it this Wednesday night. So please don't get duped by this. But certainly, the gospel of Jesus and his miraculous ministry was radically different from the false teachers of of this word faith movement. Folks, now think of this. Never anywhere in Scripture do you read of Jesus exercising some kind of of divine faith to perform a miracle. Never do do you see him having to somehow manipulate the spiritual laws of the universe. A silliness. Never do you see Jesus as having a satanic nature. In need of being born again. I mean, folks, that is a blasphemy that begs language. You never see him suffering in hell. You do see him going to the spirits who are in hell. We read about that and he announces his victory. But you don't see him suffering there. Likewise, the faith of those who cried out for mercy that we read about here in the Gospels in no way resembled the word faith idea. You see, you don't see anywhere in these people some kind of a need for some kind of metaphysical, positive confession, some need for visualization. You know, Jesus never once said to anyone that came to him, you need to have the faith of God or you won't be healed. I mean, what did he say to the two blind men in Matthew 9, 28? He said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. And he healed them. And folks, there is no example of anyone in Scripture not receiving their healing after Jesus healed them. I mean, friends, that is just pure make-believe. No, instead, the gospel message and the miraculous ministry of Jesus bears no resemblance to the blasphemous fiction of the word faith movement. Friends, I I just warn you as your pastor, be be on guard. Warn your friends lest they too be overtaken by the myths. 
And I'm going to close with this thought. I, I, I just have to end on, on a much more positive note here. I think of 2 Timothy 1.12, where Paul tells us, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Friends, what a wonderful verse, that by God's grace, we have committed our eternal interest to the merciful and omnipotent hands of the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know His character. We know His faithfulness. We know His love. We know His word. We know His power. Therefore, we can have utmost confidence that He will guard what we have entrusted to Him until that day. That day when we stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiven, blameless, with great joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the glorious truth of Your Word. And Father, how we would cry out to You as Your people that You would help us to be vigilant and guard ourselves from the heresies that are so clever, so subtle, and are gaining such momentum in this age of apostasy. And Lord, I pray also that we will have a heart of compassion for those that are duped by these people. Lord, help us not to be spiritual elitists, but help us to have a heart of humility that nevertheless has boldness and authority and confidence in the Word of God so that we can demonstrate to people that are caught up in error what the truth really is. And then, Lord, by Your grace and by the power of Your Spirit, would that they see the truth and be delivered from the darkness and the condemnation of satanic error. Lord, thank You for meeting with us today. We love You and we long to see You face to face. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.